You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Okay, church, I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles. Grab your Bibles or your Bible app, and I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. We're stepping into a new series today that's going to lead us all the way until Easter. We're going to read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 26 through 2, where am I going? Uh, Through to 34. 26 through to 34. And out of respect for God's word, if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand. What happened? hear the word of God to us this morning. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then Then they will all say, then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not, they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The word of the Lord. Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. I'm mindful this morning that um, many of us have just so many things clouding our heads right now as we step into this building. Um, We're worried about loved ones. Um, We're worried about ourselves. And so we want to uh, invite you into this space to speak to us however we've arrived here today. We don't want to put on any veneer uh, any better than we're actually feeling. We want to come as we are. Because that's where you're going to meet us. And so I pray you'd soften us and we would be ready to hear from you this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, very excited to have, uh, have you here. I met a few um, newer people this morning who are just uh, beginning to call this their home. And we're very glad uh, to have you. We are stepping into a new... Um, series this morning, as I mentioned, and it's, it will lead us into to Easter. It's going through this, this season, what the, the traditional church would call, it's a season of Lent, of, of anticipating. Um, and it's a series that's going to look at the seven statements of Jesus on the cross. Some of you maybe have heard them before called the seven last words from the cross, which makes no sense because they're phrases. So I don't know why they're traditionally called that, but 
Um, so much is going on in this narrative. You might have noticed, like, this narrative just jumps right in. There's so much stuff we, we like, especially if you're new to church, like, how did we get to this so, so quickly? Many of Jesus' disciples were going, how did we get to this so quickly? Uh, so much has taken, taken place as, as we, we join in on this kind of conclusion of Jesus' ministry, and it's all culminating in his, his crucifixion. Uh, Jesus is healed. He has, he has taught, and he's taught in a way that people have said, this, this guy teaches better than any of our religious leaders. He teaches, uh, but he's never sat under any leader. So how, how does he have all this, this wisdom? He has shown love, and he has been accepting of those who have felt like they are on, on the outside. And, and all these things you would think would bring about praise and popularity, and it did with massive crowds. But really, what's going on right now comes down to the audacity that Jesus claimed to be God. That he said, I and the Father are one. And beyond that, he did something that really ticked the religious uh, elites off. He forgave sins. In Luke 5, verse 21, it says this. Or does it? Yeah. It says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves. This is just after, uh, oh, sorry, no. This is after Jesus uh, healed the paralytic. He says, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? That's the worst, the worst charge you could have against somebody. Who can forgive sins? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus, stick to the healing, stick to the teaching, as long as you don't put us down too much, um, but do not have the audacity to claim that you are God and act as only God can act and forgive sins. That was a step too far for the Pharisees. Uh, the scriptures were very clear. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, I, this is God speaking, even I, this is a way of saying I, and only I am he who blots out your transgressions for my, for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Only Yahweh, only God can do this. Now, people around the Pharisees were beginning to go draw these connections as Jesus wanted them to. Wait a second, only God can forgive sins and this guy's healing sins. God has claimed that he will heal all our diseases. And here is this man claiming to be God who's healing all our diseases. And he's forgiving sins. They were beginning to get it. In, in, and, and they were responding the way they ought to respond, the way we all ought to respond when we come face to face with Jesus. John chapter 9, verse 38. This is after the blind man has been healed. This man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And you know who didn't tell him, didn't, you know who didn't say, hey, don't worship me. I'm just a prophet. Don't worship me. I'm not God. You know who didn't do that? Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas, after Jesus is, is resurrected. Thomas comes before Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. And you know who didn't tell him? To, hey, don't, don't call me God. I'm just, I'm just an angel. I, I'm, just, I'm just a mouthpiece. No, Jesus didn't say that. He allowed himself to be worshipped. And because Jesus was kind of shaking the religious worldview of those who saw themselves as kind of the gatekeepers of, of, of proper, acceptable religion, and what faith ought to look like. Because Jesus was pushing up against that, Jesus, there was a plot to put Jesus to death by the religious elites. So Jesus was sentenced to death for being who he said he was. That's why Jesus died. 
And history records that the religious leaders um, got together with the Roman uh, leaders, government in the area. They brought all sorts of false charges. They had a mock trial, which had people who couldn't even bring anything against Jesus. And he was convicted because the voice of the mob was louder than reason. And then he was beaten and bruised. He was marched outside the city on the longest route he could possibly go on to get outside to Golgotha because everyone was supposed to see this happening. And people were mocking him. And he was hoisted up onto the cross. What words would you have for the crowd? And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so what I'd like to do this morning, today, is to, is to take, take in this scene. <laughs> this very chaotic scene that ends with those words. I want us to, to make our way in from, from standing on the outside of this crowd, on the outside of this display, looking at the center and, and, and watching this cross make its way to the center, becoming the focal point of this crowd, uh, an event that whether you believe in Jesus, that Jesus was who he said he was or not, this event changed the trajectory of history. And as we look at this scene, what is the first thing we see? The first thing we see is an irreligious symbol. An irreligious symbol. That might surprise you. Guys, the cross is the worst choice for a religious symbol. The worst possible choice of a symbol to get people to rally behind. Hey, I'm your leader. Follow me. Do you want to be a part of this? That's not how you get people. You don't have banners that say, take up your cross and follow me. That's not how you get people to start a movement. In Jesus' time, crucifixion was not, it was not against the law. It was the law. This is how the law dealt with those who would push back against the government. It was strangely ordinary. It took place in the public so everybody could see it going on. You would walk by it on your way to the market. Imagine you're, you, you park your car at Costco and you're getting out and lining the sides of the parking lot or people being crucified. The Romans described crucifixion as being condemned to the death of a beast. And today we wouldn't even treat animals like this. The crowds understood that they had a role in all of this too. Their job was to jeer and to mock and to laugh and to point and bring as much shame as they could on the individual who was being crucified. To vilify, to degrade, to mock. See, theologically, spiritually, crucifixion was an, an enactment of the worst that humanity can be, all embodied in the most sadistic and human impulse that lie within us. And all of them were aimed towards Jesus, the perfect Son of God. All the cruelty the human race can, can, can muster up was focused on him. As Isaiah wrote 800 years earlier, Isaiah 53 verse 5 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. The cross seemingly was not a symbol of the power of God or the peace that he offers. And that's why it's important to remember that crucifixion was still going on while Christians were 
going all over the known world and proclaiming a crucified king. Can you imagine that? It's like, yeah, we know that horrible, horrible thing that everyone thinks is the lowest, lowest possible thing. Well, we consider Jesus who is crucified to be the king of all creation. In fact, this is what scholars point to as one of the most powerful arguments for the truth of the Christian faith. The human religion, how one scholar says it, the human religious imagination could not have arrived at this idea so foreign to generally accepted spiritual ideas as to have a crucified Messiah. And what makes it difficult for you and I to understand today, I mean, how many of us, I mean, it's not a show of hands, but how many of us have a cross around our neck, right? I've got, I've got cross earrings on, not the cool dangly ones from the 80s, but I've got cross earrings I mean, I did. Let's just cover that. Anyway. But that's what makes it so difficult today. We, we see crosses as decorations. They hang on our wall. This is what Jesus does. He takes the most irreligious symbol and makes it something we lift up as the means of our salvation and forgiveness. And he does that with lives. I don't know how low you think your life is, but he can elevate it. He will elevate it. But the cross is actually in no way religious. As, as Minister Fleming Rutledge points out, she says, the cross is in reality by a very long way the most irreligious, unspiritual object ever to find its way into the heart of faith. That's what Jesus does. But here's the thing. It, 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 the cross does what, what no other symbol can do. It, it gives the greatest focal point of the depth of human sin and even deeper resources of Christ's love. The cross is where the depth of humanity's sin and the even deeper resources of Christ's love intersect. It is powerful because it's so irreligious. And as, 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 we, as we step closer, as we, we see this this irreligious spectacle going on, and we step further, we step closer into the crowd, to this dramatic display, what do we find? We find a chaotic crowd. A chaotic crowd. You can find everything in this crowd. Different motives, different desires. We have the soldiers. They're at the very beginning and the, the end of the text we read in verse 26, and at the end of verse 34, it begins and ends with them. And they, they led him towards the location of his, his execution. Our, our passage ends with them casting lots, the gambling for Jesus' clothes as a prize, as a trinket to go home with, playing a game as if it's just the end of the day, the end of another job. And their job was to inflict pain. Their job was to make a spectacle, to be the strong arm of the Roman emperor in the outback uh, area of Judea, aimed to strike fear into anyone who would attempt to push back against the government. We see Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa, in, in modern-day Libya, 1,300 kilometers away. And it says he was, he's a, he was just on his way in from the country, and he gets the cross slapped onto his back. He's, he's pulled in. He, it doesn't really imply he even knew what was going on. He's just kind of showing up and they're like, hey, can you help us with this? He's a foreigner from far away. Probably there for the Passover, which was about to take place. There were, uh, there's a handful of synagogues that were in, in the first century that were in, in, in the area of Libya, modern day Libya. And he's grabbed by the soldiers and he's forced into the narrative of Jesus. 
We have the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot going on here. The daughters of Jerusalem, in verses 27 all the way to 31, who were mourning and wailing as Jesus was carrying the cross or, or watching him walk after he'd been beaten and bruised. The daughters of Jerusalem, it's not just a, a nice uh, title that Jesus comes up with. It's not like a prophetic, oh, daughters of Jerusalem. That's not what's going on. The daughters of Jerusalem, as scholars understand, historians understand, were actually a group of women who were paid. It was their job to follow people who were about to be crucified and wail and cry for them. So you, you could kind of go out of your way if, if uh, someone in your family was about to be crucified and they had no friends. You could go and pay the daughters of Jerusalem and they would follow them and cry and wail for them. In some ways, you would say they're, they're being paid to give lip service. And Jesus turns to them and he says something very unnerving. He turns to them and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the womb that never bore and the breast that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, what, what's all this about? In the midst of Jesus' suffering, he calls on these women to prepare themselves for something terrible that's going to happen. Jesus says, there's going to be a time when you're going to say, nobody should bring any children into this world. There, we only know suffering and pain. We should stop bringing children into this world because things are so horrible. And something terrible is coming to Jerusalem. Something that Jesus uh, cries about earlier in, in Luke chapter 19. He sa it says this. It says, as he approached Jerusalem, this is just a week earlier, and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from, hidden from your eyes. Got the next slide there. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That phrase, the time of God's coming, is a, is a phrase that, that uh, the Jews would have heard over and over and over. The day of the Lord, the day of God showing up because the children of Israel had, had left him behind. In the midst of Jesus' own suffering, that is his concern. He makes a connection. And, th and there's, a, there's, a, there's a consequence to rejecting God's revelation of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jerusalem, who God had warned for centuries, was going to suffer because they were unwilling to repent and turn back to God. Hosea, the prophet, speaking the words of God in the 8th century BC, he writes that Israel had grown, it had grown like a vine and it had overtaken, but while it was growing like a vine, it, it built altars to foreign gods. And while it was growing like a vine and made its way up mountains, it built a worship, they were called worship poles, asterisk poles, to, to other gods. They made all these places of worship for foreign gods after God had gifted them a land. And Hosea says that there are going to be consequences for rejecting God, the very God who created you and sustains you. In Hosea 10, verse 8, it says, The high places of wickedness will be destroyed, 
It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles. So Hosea, before this, has been talking about a vine growing. And now he says, thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us and the hills fall on us. So Jesus is referring back to this and say, this is on its way. Be aware of this. He is, he is playing the, the role of a prophet at this moment. In the moment of his deep suffering, he's worried, still worried about Jerusalem. And then he says this in, in, in 23, 31. For if the people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? He's saying that if the Son of God is being persecuted in his perfection, in the fullness of life, how much more will those who have, who have rejected truth, rejected true life, be in trouble? And it, it, it may sound very harsh, but what Jesus is saying is, save your tears, you're going to need them. Something horrible is coming. And, you, and if you're just going to pay me lip service, as Israel has been doing for Yahweh for centuries, if you're just going to do that, there's no way out for you. And as we look back, historically, we know that something very real did happen to Jerusalem, a horrible event in 70 AD, when the Romans pushed back against a revolt of the Jews, completely demolished Jerusalem. Stole from its city, stole from its temple. You can go to Rome today and see an arch that has uh, an image of the Romans coming back, the uh, Arch of Titus, with the Romans coming back with all the different elements from the museum, or <laughs> from the museum, sorry, from the temple. Daughters of Jerusalem, you mourn for me, but mourn for yourself. And what happened after that, many of you will read about the diaspora of the, of the Jews in the first century and throughout history, really. But it began in 70 AD when the Romans came in and all the Jews spread out all over the place. Well, after the daughters of Jerusalem, we see that there are two criminals, possibly part of uh, Barabbas' crew. He was known as a dangerous criminal, and they are placed, uh, Jesus is placed uh, between them. And I mean, that's bad enough for if you were just a rabbi, bad enough if you were just a prophet, but to have the Son of God hung between two criminals. And we'll get more into that aspect later in our series. And then there's just the crowd, this large number that followed him, it says in verse 27, who accumulated to watch this spectacle. And we consume that uh, the rest of the crowd was made up with some of the religious leaders, uh, maybe zealots who were hoping that the Romans would push in and people were going to pull out knives and fight back against uh, the Roman occupation. Um, they were ready for some action, always the zealots. Uh, the disciples were there, scared. People who were there were maybe were just there to be curious in what was going on. There's a mix of fear. There's a mix of grotesque delight. There's a mix of indifference. And at the center of this crowd, crucified on an irreligious symbol, we find Jesus. We find on his lips a seemingly illogical response. And a logical response, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Some have argued that Jesus is simply speaking to the soldiers beneath him. I, th I think in light of the whole text, Jesus is speaking to all of those who are in front of him. Speaking to you and I. The soldiers who physically hammered nails through his hands and feet. I mean, that would make sense to, to call out to God for their forgiveness but also the, the religious Jews who lied to get Jesus arrested and condemned. 
the daughters of Jerusalem who were offering artificial sorrow, the disciples who ran when he was captured, the criminals at his side. Jesus' statement suggests that, that this crowd is in the grip of something that they don't fully comprehend. That's why Jesus' words are so life-giving. Forgive them for they know not what they do. The innocent one, the perfect son of God who, who hangs on this irreligious symbol does not does not welcome our chaos into a new religion. That would solve nothing. Religion is just grasping in the dark. Religion simply wouldn't do for those who know not what they do. Because religion can't go deep enough. The only life-changing, history-changing words that can be uttered by the perfect Lamb of God are, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He did... He didn't look at the chaotic crowd and see enemies. He saw victims. How many times when we hear news stories or are being, find ourselves pushing up against some of the ideologies of the day that, that are hurtful and our back gets up and we get angry, do we see victims of darkness or do we see enemies? Jesus would look and see victims and pray for their souls and pray that the Spirit would reveal truth to them. Pray that the Father would forgive them. But here, here, here's the beauty of, of forgiveness for those who know not what they do. First of all, because we're all sitting in here as people who sin and often know not what we do. That's why it's so important. It's, such an over, it's so overarching in its power to say forgive them for they know not what they do. It digs deeper than our intention. That there is nothing you can do or could ever do or say or be that would be beyond the reach of Jesus' prayer. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> nothing at all. And, and the, the challenge to us in that is that it also means that no one else is outside of the power of this prayer. No one else is outside the invitation of this prayer. It saves us from wondering if, if we've sinned in a way that will dismiss his love for us. You think you're an enemy of Jesus? You think maybe you are a bystander? You, you are broken? Just one unknown and unseen by Jesus. His forgiveness is for you. You might say, yeah, but I've, I've held my fist up to the heavens. I, I've lived a life rejo rejecting him. I've heard, as the song says, my mocking voice among the scoffers. You might say, I've paid no attention to him. You might say, I've only paid him lip service. Paul reminds us in Romans 3, in a very familiar verse, For all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Now, I know, if anyone has attended here for a while, I know that I've got some Greek scholars in here. When that verse says, all have sinned, in the Greek, do you know what that word all means? All, that's right, good. And all are saved by grace. You know what that word all means? Greek scholars. It doesn't matter who in the crowd you identify with, but it does matter how you respond. We see that in Jesus' words, don't we? It does matter how we respond. It doesn't matter how you came. Jesus is not concerned with how you came. He's very concerned with how you head out of here. That's the beauty of those words. Forgive them for they know not what they do. 
Now, the final words in the text that I read, the text that we read this morning, immediately following Jesus' words of pleading with the Father to show mercy and forgive, it says this, and they, being the, the, the soldiers, divided up his clothes by casting lots. Does that ever fall with a thud? After the soldiers have done their job, have accomplished their goal, they go about their business, like someone might hang out after work, play cards or something, having a laugh. The soldiers, by gambling for Jesus' clothes, fulfill an ancient prophecy. In Psalm 22, and we'll be hitting more of Psalm 22 through this series, in Psalm 22, verse 16, it says, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garment. Powerful text for being written. 900 years, 1,000 years before the crucifixion of Jesus. They do not know what they do. Forgiveness from the highest authority is available, and they are content to go about their day. Theologian William Hendrickson reflects on the soldiers this way. He says this. Do I have it up there? Maybe I missed it. No, there it is. He says, poor, poor soldiers. How much did they take home from Calvary? A few pieces of clothing? No, I mean, yes, <laughs> a few pieces of clothing. No, truly penitent hearts, no renewed visions, no changed lives, no savior. So the question for us this morning, <laughs> in light of the, the far-reaching, the all-encompassing offer of forgiveness is what do we leave with this morning? Regardless of where you would have stood in the crowd, on offer for you is something completely irreligious. Why is it irreligious? Because it's free. It's irreligious because it doesn't take effort. It was done for you. It wasn't cheap, but it's free. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. Christianity does not say, do this, do this, do this, do this. It looks at the cross and says, done. That is what is on offer in the forgiveness of Christ. The forgiveness on offer 2,000 years ago is the same forgiveness that is on offer this morning. And as John wrote in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And many of us come and go on Sunday mornings and leave with nothing more than tasty cookies. And some of us who come and go and miss out on Sunday mornings are sometimes preaching the sermon <laughs> and miss something better that Jesus wants to do for us. So the religious elite, the mockers, the bystanders, those who weep, the criminal, Jesus' offer still stands. So I don't care how you came here today. I don't care what you think you have in the closet that he can't discover. Secret, he's already discovered it. And he loves you no less. 
He doesn't love a future version of you once you get it together. He loves you as you are at this moment and loves you enough not to leave you that way. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us. Father, forgive us for we know not what we do. It's a, it's a phrase we could repeat every day and we could be overwhelmed by the burden of our sin and the, the intricacies of our hearts if your offer was not so complete and welcoming. In our sins of commission and our sins of omission, where we, we know full well what we're doing, when, when darkness simply deadens our spiritual senses, we thank you that your offer of forgiveness still stands and makes a way for us into your family. gives us a right to be called children of the living God. So, Father, we come before you, often feeling the chaos of the crowd, the, the anger of, of differing ideas, the fear of being found out, and through the noise and the voices and the wailing, may we hear your words this morning. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Father, if there are any here this morning who have never made this step out of the chaos and into your forgiveness, give them the courage this morning to do so. And just before the, the, the band can, leads us in a song, I'm just going to ask you in silence to do a little business with Jesus. And it could be for the first time you just want to say, Jesus, I want, I want those words to apply to me. I've been angry. I've, I've held a fist to heaven. I've walked. I've run at times in the opposite direction. I've lived only for myself. I've burnt bridges. I've hurt others, and I've hurt myself. And I want to take that offer because I know it's just as strong today as it was 2,000 years ago. Father, forgive me, for I have known not what I've done. And I'll remind you, if we, forgive, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins. You are clean before the Father. And maybe you've been a Christ follower for a long time. And there's just certain things that you've been going through that you have, just, that you have not been placing Christ in the center. You've been trying to, to balance it on your own. You've been trying to hold it up on your own. Father, forgive us, for we know not what we do. Father, forgive me, for I know not what I do. You are forgiven. And Father, for all of us who have sinned in ways we're fully aware of this week, have sinned by doing things and we've sinned by holding back, and because of the intricacies of our heart, we've sinned in ways we didn't even realize. Father, forgive us, for we know not what we do. I thank you that, that your forgiveness is so all-encompassing. It digs deep, deeper than our sin could ever go. Your grace is much greater. And so for those of us who have, have welcomed you in and welcomed your forgiveness in, may we leave this place in light of who we are because of what you have done for us. Leave here in light of the fact that our sin is left there on the cross. You absorbed it into your body and by your stripes we are healed. May we leave this place in joy and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.